I called up my boss, Nick, in tears. <laughs> and I said uh, something along the lines of, I'm feeling overwhelmed. For the first time, I'm not performing. Because I'd had high stress before in my life, but I had I had been a top performer most of my life. And here I felt like I was completely drowning. But I felt shame. I felt like somehow this was because I was mentally weak and that somehow I was flawed. Susie McAlpine is a leadership coach, author, and expert on burnout. And as you might have guessed, she's not just a subject matter expert here. Susie struggled with burnout herself and came away from the experience with a perspective that flies in the face of everything we've heard about burnout. Hi, I'm Lara Dolch, and you're listening to She Knows the Way, a show about deciding what's next when doing what's expected no longer feels right. Before we get back to Susie's story and her revelations about burnout, I wanted to make sure that you knew about a new way to support our work on the show. It's called Buy Me a Coffee, and it's seriously such a cute idea for a creator support platform. You'll see what I mean when you visit buymeacoffee.com slash she knows the way. And no, you can't actually buy me a coffee there, although I am always up for more coffee, just FYI. But what you can do is support the show by donating a dollar amount equivalent to the price of a coffee or two or three, whatever you like. What we'll actually use that money for is all the things that go into producing a quality podcast, which is essentially a small business. Things like researching, tracking down and booking guests, prepping for and conducting guest interviews, scripting, fact-checking, editing and mixing episodes, paying for our podcast hosting platform, which is how episodes show up in whatever app you use to listen, and using our music subscription service to add a little ambiance to the show. Yeah, it's a lot. And we love doing it, but we literally can't do it without your help. So if you're finding value in the show, if it inspires and motivates you or gives you a new perspective on a challenge you're facing, or simply makes you feel less alone as you find your way to what's next, then we'd be grateful for your support. If you're able, please support the show by visiting buymeacoffee.com slash she knows the way. You can make a one-time donation or you can choose to support the show on a monthly or annual basis by selecting membership, which would be especially amazing since it allows us to plan a bit better. And at some point, members will get exclusive access to cool stuff. I just know what that is yet. For now, whatever you're able to give is greatly appreciated. So thanks. Okay, back to Susie. Like Susie, I've also dealt with burnout firsthand. For me, it began one fall, although I didn't realize it at the time. By the following spring, I felt like I'd been hit by a truck. I couldn't sleep. I felt anxious all the time. And no matter what I did, I couldn't recharge. Not only that, but I began to feel disconnected from work I used to love and cynical about everything and everyone in the organization I worked for. And it showed. I had become a completely different and not very pleasant, if I'm being honest, person. I wondered if I was working too much. But like Susie, I was accustomed to managing a hefty workload in a high-stress environment. 
I wondered if it might be something with my diet or my health, but I was already doing all the things every article about stress tells you to do. I was meditating, I was eating well, I was exercising. So finally, I had to wonder, what else is going on here? And what if I'm not the problem? Those questions led me straight to Susie and her research. And then Susie turned all of my assumptions about burnout upside down. As I mentioned, Susie McAlpine is an expert in the field of burnout. She has quite literally written the book on it. But Susie's first encounter with burnout was more than academic. It happened back in 2008. From the outside, it looked like my life was pretty rosy. It was awash with professional pinnacles and shiny badges of success. Uh, My friends used to call me Super Susie, and I wore that badge with honor, even though it weighed me down a little bit. Susie had just come back to work from maternity leave after having her third child, and she'd come back a month early because her boss had asked her to. And I'm such a people pleaser that I said yes. If you're feeling ready to stalk down Susie's boss and send him a strongly worded email, hold that thought. We'll come back to him in a minute. To Susie's credit here, her decision to go back was about more than just people-pleasing. Again, this was 2008. The world was falling into the global financial crisis, and Susie worked at the world's largest executive search and HR consulting firm. So things were busy. And every morning I would bundle the kids into the back seat of the car, uh, crisp navy suit, you know, had baby spittle on it. I'd be munching down a cold piece of toast. I'd careen out of the driveway, hurl uh, the children into their respective daycares and schools, and then zoom into Auckland's CBD to have some meeting with some bigwig board chairman or CEO to recruit another uh, bigwig executive. But amidst this big job and these big meetings, Susie started to feel some fault lines. I remember just feeling so stressed. And it was even showing up in my leadership with my team. It was sort of robotic and distance. Uh, I just remember feeling stressed about uh, what I had to achieve and feeling like I was so overwhelmed so overwhelmed with work. I would have to say that probably 95% of my mental capacity was just thinking about work. I just felt numb. And then one morning, Susie reached her breaking point. It was a Tuesday morning and it's etched in my mind as if it happened yesterday. I pulled up outside the school of my eldest son, Nicholas. He was seven years old at the time. And he turned to me from the back seat of the car, his voice trembling and his bottom lip quivering, and he said to me, Mummy, can I please have a hug? Uh, Now, this was quite a big deal for Nicholas. He was uh, not an affectionate child. He had recently been diagnosed with Asperger's and had been struggling at school. And I remember at the time just thinking, gosh, this is just another thing on my long list of to-do lists. And when he asked me for this hug, his words didn't compute. I remember my mind racing about the presentation I had to give in 30 minutes, and I answered in a clipped, stressed-out tone, no, I don't have time. And I shoved him and his little backpack onto the sidewalk. You know, what do you think your son experience was in that moment when he was standing on the sidewalk like what did you see do you remember and I, I'm, I'm I know this is probably not easy to think about but 
What do you think his experience was? Yeah, um, uh, it is a great question. I try not to think about it too much. As you can see, the emotion in my voice is even years later uh, because it was it's etched in my mind. I think uh, he possibly felt abandoned, <laughs> um, bewildered, uh, and certainly I did not show up in that moment the way uh, that I certainly wanted to as a mother. A few minutes later, Susie pulled over to the side of the road. And I sat there with tears, um, you know, mixing in with the baby vomit, going, what has become of me that I am so emotionally distant that I don't have the capacity, the emotional capacity to hug one of the most important people in my life? For the record, Susie's son is doing just fine these days. He's 21 years old now, and they have a great relationship. Though Susie says he does bring up this moment from time to time to tease her. But in the car, in that moment, Susie was not fine. It might have been that same day I called up my boss, Nick, in tears. (laughs) And I didn't know exactly what was wrong at the time, but he knew that that something was up, as did I. Susie now knows that something was burnout. And from the research she's done in the years since then, she also knows that her behavior towards her son fits one of the classic symptoms of burnout, depersonalization. But at the time, Susie didn't yet have the terms to contextualize how she was feeling and acting. In her conversation with her boss, she just had to feel her way through it. I said uh, something along the lines of, I'm feeling overwhelmed. For the first time, I'm not performing. Because I'd had high stress before in my life, but I had I had been a top performer most of my life. And here I felt like I was completely drowning. And I said, I'm just exhausted beyond belief. Susie didn't just feel like something was wrong. She felt like something was wrong with her. I felt shame. I felt like somehow this burnout that I was experiencing was because I was mentally weak um, and that somehow I was flawed. This mentality that burnout is an individual problem that comes from personal failures, it feels like it's everywhere. Remember all those tips and tricks for beating burnout articles from the start of the pandemic? But this narrow understanding of burnout is part of the issue. It means a lot of people dealing with burnout never ask for help. And for those who do, it means they might be turning to people who actually make things worse. One of the, one of the things that often I see leaders doing when they're leading someone who's experiencing burnout or even doing it yourself is to take everything off that person. You know, let's just, you know, go on high and we'll just take it all off. But one of the causes of burnout is actually a lack of control, a sense of lack of control. Hearing Susie name this cause of burnout, a lack of control, I felt my whole body exhale. Control was a huge factor in my own burnout. And the scenario Susie just described is exactly what happened when my manager and I tried to solve it. Fortunately, Susie's boss, Nick, had a different reaction. One of the things that Nick did, which was wonderful in hindsight, is we didn't rush to solve it. We, we spent a bit of time just unpicking and getting curious about what really was happening for me. You know, he had some wonderful coaching questions for me, such as, how long have you been feeling like this? 
describe it to me? Is it a metaphor? And lots of listening. He really listened deeply. And then Nick and Susie started to think together about a solution. We sat down and looked at what was on my plate. It seems so simple, uh, but we said, what is going on here? Where are you finding the most stress in your job? And where are you still finding joy or where are you finding strength? Susie says this co-creation and Nick's leadership made a real difference in her recovery. So Nick was really wonderful to continue to publicly support me and say to my team, you know, this is not a weakness. One of the things I didn't realize at the time, but which really helped me, was him and I decided to be quite open and honest with my team. I had the courage to be vulnerable and transparent with my team. And the most beautiful thing happened. I've realized, and research shows later, that actually if you can be a little bit vulnerable and open about any mental distress as a leader in an organization, it not only builds trust, but it makes it safe for other people to also talk about how they're feeling. And what I noticed was that my team really rallied So we all came together to go, well, who can pick up some slack? Who can sort of step in? And so I think that really helped uh, my recovery. Okay, I realize not all managers are Nick. And for many of us, work is the last place we'd feel safe being vulnerable. But it's helpful to have a model for what genuinely does work. And to me, what's so clear from this part of Susie's story is that burnout is bigger than just an individual or a manager. So the solution has to be bigger, too. And I know that some of your listeners may be going, gosh, I don't have that with my manager or my leader. And, you know, my heart goes out to you. We say kia kaha here in New Zealand, um, and that means be strong. And so if you can't have that relationship with your direct manager, Don't give up. Seek someone else. Maybe there is a mentor, uh, another person in your organization who you can turn to, um, even your GP or loved ones. Yeah. Who else did you turn to besides your boss during the time that you were experiencing burnout? Mm. Uh, Well, my my husband, we've been together. We haven't been married, but we've been together 22 years. um, And he's a chief executive, so he sort of um, understands that. But my husband loves to fix things. So uh, he was very much in the early stages coming up with lots and lots of ideas, which I sort of threw back in his face, stop fixing it. Um, <laughs> but over time, he learned to just really support it. it was the, the most beautiful things were when he said, well, the most important thing, Suze, is that you're happy and you're well. And so whatever you need to take and decision you need to take, you know, I'm very lucky, isn't it, that I had Nick and and Doug. But actually, do you know what, Lara, and I don't know if your listeners may find this, is the woman in our lives, isn't it, that those deep friendships, those women who say to us, you're not alone, I felt like that too. Actually, it was at the time, it was a couple of my girlfriends saying, okay, enough is enough. I'm coming round. You've got to sort your proverbial out, you know? And so, you know, with <laughs> our girlfriends are the best, aren't they? Really? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's a big piece of what this show, I hope the show is to our listeners is, is that community of women? Because I think you're right. It's um, sometimes that's just where you need to turn. It is. 
With the support of her manager, her family, and her dearest friends, Susie says after about six months, she felt more like herself again. But moving through her recovery and gaining more perspective on her burnout sparked Susie's curiosity. She wanted to fully understand what she'd just been through. And this curiosity led her to research and to a whole new chapter of her career. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll hear about the other causes of burnout you've never heard of and why trying to solve burnout on your own doesn't work. Welcome back. When we left Susie McAlpine, she was surrounded by an incredible support network and well on her way to recovering from burnout. She was also just starting to conduct research on burnout, which led her to deepen her own recovery and, I'm grateful to say, eventually helped me in mine. Susie's research bore out what her own experience showed her, that burnout is not just a product of overwork and that it's not just an individual problem. Through her research, Susie identified six different possible causes of burnout, and most of these are rooted in an organization's culture. Overwork is one of these causes, and so is another one we heard about earlier, a lack of control. The third cause is a sense of isolation. You know, this can be experienced from microaggressions due to race or gender, even excessive politics or bullying uh, is part of that isolation. Number four an absence of fairness. So things like pay, perks, prestige, promotion, even if your voice is not being heard in meetings, this can contribute to an absence of fairness. Which can be related to number five, insufficient reward. This is, am I getting out what I'm putting in? Is there a balance, a sense? Now, most people think it's all about money, but actually it's often intrinsic rewards. Do I feel valued? And finally, number six, a values mismatch. When my own personal values are at odds with the organization's values. And so over time, you start to make a trade-off. This is why, if you've ever tried to solve burnout on your own, you know it doesn't work. Susie uses the example of a sick fish to explain this. Maybe you take the fish out of its tank to treat the illness. But if you put the fish back into contaminated water, nothing is going to change. And I'm curious, as you list off those causes, what of those do you feel like map back to your experience? That's so funny. You must have been reading my mind, Lara, because (laughs) uh, I was thinking back to my time. um, Overwork. I was trying to do this role. (laughs) Nick had said to me, come back early at four months, you know, when your daughter's four months. But I was working four days a week and it was at least a a five-day-a-week role at that time. So I didn't have the time in this instance to be able to actually uh, lead my team through the GFC, which is what I needed. A lack of control. This is where, at that time, the GFC was occurring. Not a great place to be in recruitment. And we should just clarify for listeners that GFC is global financial crisis. Yes, I'm showing my age No, no, it's all good. I'm Um, I'm with you. And so a lot of what is happening with COVID, you can start to see that this is also happening, right? You know, there is so much that is beyond our control. And so particularly because I was working for a multinational, there were some, you know, ideas and edicts that were coming down to New Zealand, which 
weren't, in my opinion, at the time, the right move to make, but I had no control. I had to execute those, even though I didn't personally feel it from a leadership perspective, they were the right one. The isolation piece was really interesting. So although I had uh, a really supportive boss, he was traveling all around Asia Pacific at the time. And although I had some peers on the leadership team, none of them were in that same office. So in many, many ways, I felt isolated on a day-to-day basis, leading through what was a very challenging time. Yeah, well, and I'm glad that you shared that because I think it's important for people to understand that you don't have to have all of those things, right? I mean, the, you know, I don't know, is there data to show like how, like what the tipping point is? Like if just one exists, is it enough or you know what I mean? Yeah, so it, you can have one of those um, in extreme or certainly if you've got some or all of them cue burnout storm. I've got a question for you. As you think about these, what, were, what do you think, Lara, might have been a play for you when you were experiencing burnout? Yeah, yeah, I think it actually it it wasn't so much overwork for me, although I suppose that could be said to be part of it. For me, what I came to understand, like I wouldn't have been able to articulate this at the time, but it was lack of control um over the projects that I was working on and it was also oddly a values mismatch, which I say oddly because I was working with this particular organization because I thought there was a values match. And, and, you know, sometimes you don't know that until later. And I think I would say those are the primary things that really I came to understand had pushed me over into this place of, to your point, complete exhaustion, like not being able to recharge even when I took time off, you know, and having no change in, in anything when projects were taken off my plate. Because to your point, that just contributed to the lack of control. <laughs> Right. And and it's it's interesting, too, because, you know, as I've gotten distance from it, I, you know, I want to be clear that, like, the organizations don't necessarily know what they're doing. Right. Burnout's not going to be solved by a fruit bowl in the lunchroom is what I always say to chief executives. You know, that's the icing on the cake. We need to look under the hood a bit more. But I think that's one of the reasons why I wrote Beyond Burnout particularly with a leadership lens, it's absolutely relevant for anyone, individuals, you know, what we can do to spot it and stop it and stamp it out. But I wanted to bring a leadership lens because leadership practices and culture have the biggest impact on whether an organisation's people experience burnout or not. You know, absolutely there are things that individuals can and should do to try and avoid burnout, but it's not enough just to put all of the onus onto the individual. It needs to be a a shared conversation and a shared responsibility with leaders and organisations as well. If you are a leader, if you are a people leader, then, um, apart from buying my book, um, I would say really... Do what you can to improve your leadership skills. Um, Improve your listening skills. Improve your coaching skills. All the basics. These are leadership superpowers. And find a way today to show your team that you genuinely care. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, no matter how much it's clear that these are organizational um, changes that need to happen. I have found that even people who call themselves burnout experts are pointing to the individuals. And it's like, oh my God, no. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's right. Like, have you come across that too? 
Yes. And since, you know, after researching it for four years, I, you know, I I will often read something on Twitter or an article which is like that and I'm shouting, no, no. (laughs) Um, (laughs) My husband laughs and says, what's going on when I'm on the couch? So organizations have a lot of catching up to do on the right way to address burnout. But the good news is that there are still a few things you can do on your own to start the process. So one of the things I often say to people, if you think that you may be experiencing burnout, is get curious about those six causes, which might, a bit like the conversation we just had, Lara, what might be at play here? Mm-hmm. Um, and then what's within our control to shift the levers? Because that will be more efficient way and effective way of actually addressing burnout. I'm curious what you would say to someone who is in a situation where you know, they've done a lot of these things, maybe they've um, attempted to have a conversation, or maybe they've identified a a values mismatch with them in the organization or whatever. And they're just kind of like, I don't see this changing. I don't see the organization changing. What would you say Mm. to them? It's a tough one. What I would say is that because burnout affects us emotionally, physically, and cognitively, I would not make any huge rash decisions if you are experiencing burnout. We never make our best decisions when we are either in a really high or a really low emotional uh, state. I don't know about you, but I've never made the best decisions when I've been in those places. So, But if you are sitting here and you've tried these things uh, and some of the strategies in the book, uh, it may be that you may need to leave the organisation, particularly if you've got things like a values mismatch you know, that's a really difficult one to change. But once again, I I wouldn't go from the frying pan into the fire. If you can, spend some time really exploring things that that light you up, where your next journey may take you, um, if you can. And don't go it alone. Uh, Like anything in life, I think if we can reach out to people who who we love and we trust and whose judgment we respect, um, we can make better decisions. Sometimes you do need to leave the organisation, but in many times, you know, a lot of people have recovered from burnout and have become more resilient and and stronger for it. Susie is one of these people. She emerged from her own experience with burnout with a stronger foundation and a clearer vision for where she wanted to take her career. Through this exploration of what my strengths were, that's how I came to executive coaching. And what we do know from the research is that if you can work from your strengths, that has a reduction in burnout. That helps you reduce burnout. So I say to leaders and individuals, you know, try and spend some time identifying your strengths, what you're good at and what you love doing it. And wherever possible, find ways over time for people to actually work from their strengths as opposed to their non-strengths. I love that Susie is doing work that lights her up. And I also love that these days she takes a different perspective on it. Work is important. My professional life is important. But whānau, what we call here in New Zealand family, my fitness, my health, you know, my mental and my physical health, uh, friends, that whole wheel of life, it's a little bit more balanced. The irony is, Lara, is I'm more successful now in my professional life uh, than I ever have been. And I think... I don't, I certainly don't work harder. Um, I do less better. 
Even with a new definition of success and a restored sense of balance in her life, Susie still faces burnout from time to time. The difference now, she says, is that she and the people around her can spot it earlier. Like any recovery or just, I think, life in general, you know, the universe is going to keep giving us little nudges and But a bit like burnt toast, I picked it up when it was kind of brown, not black, as the first time. And lately, in regards to work, Susie finds herself in uncharted emotional waters. What I've found after writing the book, and quite a busy year, is I've been waiting for the next big thing for me to get excited about. And it hasn't come. And at first, for the first few months, I was like, yep. But then it kept on not coming. It's like being in a dead calm. I don't have anything to sail towards. There's no island that I'm moving towards. I'm bobbing up and down on my boat waiting for something to ignite me to move forward. Mm. But it is uncomfortable for me. It's unusual. Why is it uncomfortable? I think it's forcing me to consider that I am still attached to doing and not being. And that although I would love to say that I have put to bed this idea that work is inherently virtuous and rest and being and doing nothing is lazy, I I think There's something in that for me to dig into. Mm. And so, yeah, someone said it's a bit like being in winter, you know, and isn't nature just such the best place for wisdom? And so I feel like this is my winter and it feels like a long winter. You know, I'm just now remembering a book called Wintering. (gasps) Yes, I've heard of this. I read it actually while I was recovering from burnout, but I think... The idea is exactly what you're talking about, is these sort of like periods in time where, yes, in nature, there's a winter so that the earth can rest and recuperate and then be glorious in the spring, right? Totally. It sounds like what I'm hearing is there's this, so it's busy, you're doing things, and there's also this internal quiet at the same time. Does that resonate? Yes, that is exactly it, Lara. I love that that description of it. And I think although it's deeply uncomfortable and it's the first time I've ever felt this lack of motivation, that's where the gold lies. I think in these experiences, sometimes the discomfort of a new feeling or, a, you know, certainly when I look back at my experience of burnout, the tough times in my life are probably the times where the greatest learning has been. And so I'm really learning to just sit with this and get curious about this feeling and not push it and not rush it, knowing a bit like that winter that probably there are some bulbs underneath that are growing. I just haven't seen them emerge yet. As eager as I am to see what emerges from Susie's wintering, I appreciate this reminder not to rush. And I have the utmost respect for Susie's candor, that no matter her expertise in burnout or how many times she's lived through it, she's still actively sorting through her relationship to work. 
Sometimes we veer off of a career path because we're charting our own course, led by a vision or a feeling. And other times we step off the path because our body, our mind, our health demands that we make a change. Or at least that's how it happened for me and Susie. I'd love to hear from you too. Have you experienced burnout? If so, how did you recognize it? How did you begin to recover? What changes has it prompted in the way you approach work or live your life? Write to us or send us a voice memo at hello at lauradolch.com to tell us your burnout story. Special thanks to Susie McAlpine for speaking with us for this episode. If you'd like to connect with Susie and learn more about her book, Beyond Burnout, you can find her on LinkedIn or on her website at susiemcalpine.com. She Knows the Way will be back with another episode in two weeks. We'll hear from Jessica Shaw, founder of the creative training company Pact, and an expert on play about why we should take play seriously. I was like, that's what I want to do. I don't want to be an actor. I want to use theater to get people in the guts and help them to make choices for themselves. Whether I agree with them or not is irrelevant. It's not about that. It's like making people agents, agents of their own change. This episode of She Knows the Way was produced by Jennifer McCord and me, Lara Dolch. For more episodes, hit subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to stay in touch, follow me on Instagram at at Lara Dolch and sign up for our newsletter at laradolch.com slash podcast or by clicking the link in the episode notes. If you're finding value in this show, leave us a review by visiting ratethispodcast.com slash she knows the way. It helps us out a lot and it helps other people find the show. And if there's someone in your life who's going through a job or life change or even considering one, please send an episode their way. Until next time, trust that you know the way. Hey there, it's Laura. Wanted to quickly pop in to let you know how much I appreciate your being here. I know there are a million podcasts you could be listening to, and I'm so glad you're spending time with us. If you're finding value in the show, we'd be grateful if you supported it by buying us a coffee. That's right. It couldn't be simpler. Visit buymeacoffee.com slash she knows the way to support our work for the price of a cup of coffee. That's buymeacoffee.com slash she knows the way. And thanks.